electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and the whole world is wondering whether this upside reversal will hold into the close today. The Dow is down more than 350 points at the lows. We're now positive. The Nasdaq higher right now, but it's still on pace for its worst month since October of 2008. We'll look at the key takeaways from tech earnings and see how next next week's results could impact the market. Plus, biotech has been a horrible bet lately. The XBI and the IBB, they're both down about 20% this year. We'll look at why and which name our analyst says should be a buy. Plus three buys and a bail. After all these wild swings, our trader has three stocks to buy right now and one to bail on. That's coming up. But we begin with today's markets. Dom Chu with the numbers. And I just realized I'm sort of keeping with the cruise theme here, Dom. Y- yes, I like it, though. I'm, I'm a fan of oh, it. <laughs> I am a fan of it. We just need the hat for Kelly, and then we'll be all set. But uh, as she's captaining her ship, as she's wor- working her way to the con, so to speak, to the bridge, let's see what's happening with the markets. Kelly mentioned this notion that the markets were lower at one point today. But as you can see here, we're modestly higher. It's nothing to write home about, but it's still important because it extends the theme of volatility. Big up days that then reverse. Big down days that then reverse to the upside. The Dow Industrial is up 43 points, one-tenth of 1%. The S&P, 43.61, the last level there, up 35 points, three-quarters of 1%. And the NASDAQ Composite is the outperformer today. It's up nearly 1.5%, 185 points higher, 13,537, the last trade there. We're going to take the next couple of screens and go through the market barbell from the market cap perspective. We'll start on the small cap side of things. This particular ETF, the ticker IWM, is the iShares ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 small cap index. This is a one-year chart. Over the last year, this trade for small cap stocks has been pretty range-bound, both on the high and the low side of things. And then just in the last few weeks, we've seen a precipitous move to the downside. We are now down roughly 22% from the highs that we saw this past fall. So what some traders call bear market territory, this is still weaker on the day. We'll see if that small cap trade is one to watch. Now let's take a look at the other side of the spectrum. The mega cap names, the ones that really drive the direction and magnitude of the markets overall, not just with the S&P, but the Nasdaq as well. Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Tesla, all up around 1% to even 6% for Apple on the heels of earnings. That is a lot of the reason for the optimism today, both in the Nasdaq and the S&P 500. But that big tech theme has come under a lot of debate over the last couple of weeks here with regard to a rising rate environment and how these do, Kelly. We'll see if that holds into the closing bell today. I'll send things back over to you. And there's the green that is helping the market today, Dom Banks. My next guests have several ideas for investors on how to position right now. And they both like NVIDIA here. Joining me now are Ava Ados, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Investment Strategist at ER Shares, and Jay Pestricelli, CEO and Portfolio Manager at Zega Financial. Welcome to you both. Ava, I'll start with you. Overall advice on the market here, what, slow and steady, what do we mean by that? Yes, slow and steady, good PEs, uh, modest PEs, good cash flow generation, cash rich companies that do not need refinancing. Um, and so we like 
it's we you can't categorically say we like one sector over the other i think it's a more of a bottom-up approach instead of a top-down and you need to go company by company and case by case and really look at their financial shelves their balance sheet their growth and their valuations all right and you're saying you expect a volatile first quarter like we've already seen but with both overvalued growth and value stocks dropping appreciably so you like these slow and steady performers boring wins in a market like this jay what about you you're hedging with options yeah absolutely kelly we still believe the best bet for growth is in the stock market we think it's a mistake to be in cash right now i think the market's probably closer to the bottom than it is to the top we don't think diversification into bonds is a way to be protected so we hedge with options and we use uh, positions in, on the option side of the house to not only determine you know where to set levels but also to help us determine stocks to purchase. You mentioned NVIDIA a minute ago. We have clients that hold NVIDIA, and you know the options market has a bullish bias on that particular ticker. ticker. The, uh, you know, the technicals look pretty strong on it. Looks like it's forming a bottom here, getting out of the oversold territory. But really, the thing for us is when you can put on uh, protection and still capture the upside, at a net credit, meaning you could actually generate a little income while being protected, you have to look at stocks like NVIDIA. Well, we had Marianne Montaigne earlier this week tell us she thought NVIDIA was attractive here. Jay, you said you like it. Ava, why does it jump out to you? So because it's able to grow its top line, but also not only grow its bottom line, but also widen it by reducing its SG&A costs. And it's in this inflationary market that's very unusual. Companies are struggling with increased labor costs and material costs. And so we saw an example yesterday with Apple. NVIDIA is another example. Many people might believe it's priced high at, with a 68 PE, and that's in fact double the one for Microsoft. But if you factor in growth and then you get the what's called the peg ratio that's one third less than microsoft so you can make an argument here that it's offering a better value very interesting jay what would you say about the market overall here is we're trying to shake off what's been a tough stretch yeah you know the 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 fed really didn't stick the landing for us on wednesday right they told stock investors uh, you're not my focus anymore the put the fed put is off the table we're going to focus on uh, the yield market and, you know, that is going to create a little bit of a bumpy ride for us. And again, when clients talk to us about how do we position in this market, you know, we have to stay invested. For us, stocks are still the best way for long-term growth and meeting individual goals. But again, doing it in a way uh, right against a, ri a rising rate environment can be very difficult. And so we're telling people brace for some choppiness over the next year. All the fundamental reasons why the market was strong last year still exist. Right. You've got corporate growth. You've also got, you know, relatively speaking, lower rates. So stay in the market, but, you know, keep yourself protected. Put on positions that allow you to grow while limiting your downside in volatile times. Eva, what would you add to that? Do you think we've seen a lot of the shakeout that the market's going to experience already? Uh, in fact, we unfortunately, we do not believe volatility is ending anytime soon until at least uh, until we see two factors and we get clarity on them. First of all, interest rates, um, stabilization, and we don't see that coming prior to March where the Fed is going to stop, stop asset purchases. And secondly, when we'll have some clarity on the international turbulence. And so even though many people believe that today might be might have signaled bottom, we do not believe we're there yet. And um, in fact, we have two days, Wednesday and Thursday, with the reversal of 2% on each day and that only happened in October 2008 and the market did not reach bottom until a 
few months after. And that might be the case in 2022, too. Yeah. I, was it March of 2009? It's a, it, I used to know the exact, almost the moment to the minute that it bottomed. Uh, but after all we've been through, it's fading. Guys, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Ava Ados and Jay Pestricelli joining us to talk some strategy and what's been a very difficult month. Apple, meantime, just the latest big tech company to report solid earnings and see a nice share pop as a result. And it's helping the whole market stabilize. Microsoft had strong guidance this week. ServiceNow was much stronger than expected. Even IBM had its best report in years. That said, we also saw some big disappointments like Teradyne. My next guest is here with the key takeaways for investors as we head into next week. Well, we'll hear from Alphabet and Amazon, among others. Joining me now is Patrick Moorhead, More Insights and Strategies CEO. Patrick, it's great to have you. Welcome. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me on. It seems one of the early takeaways is actually that software is strong and it's not experiencing the same post-pandemic cliff that Netflix and Peloton have been struggling with. Yeah, from a uh, software basis, and I'll put software and software as a service, uh, SaaS companies, those are, those are absolutely on fire. And I also don't want to ignore even uh, capital equipment or equipment like an IBM. I mean, IBM, like you said, uh, biggest uh, revenue pop in a long time. Intel had a good quarter. Uh, Microsoft, uh, overall, though, is probably the one of the most diversified companies out there. Not only do they have the right markets, which I would say are B2B, has the right deployment methodologies, which is uh, IaaS, PaaS, and SaaS, which is just fancy for covering uh, all of the cloud uh, out there. Yeah. All right. So, you know, we've highlighted software. We also heard from, you know, the others you mentioned. What are some of the other big takeaways and the reasons why you think tech might now be finding its footing today? Yeah. So first off, uh, you have to, the way that I break it down is looking at, at consumer and also business markets. And I think uh, Microsoft and IBM and even SAP are, are great uh, bellwethers for that. And that did great. In fact, if you double click on Intel, they had a 53% increase in data center for businesses. And that's really unprecedented numbers. That's a really good sign for the future. And on the consumer, really the bellwether there is, is Apple. And we have upcoming Google. Uh, but Apple really, you know, knocked the cover off the ball as well. So those are two really good signs. So you have services, you have capital equipment, and you have semiconductors. And, you know, and to balance it out, Teradyne yeah. uh, really did super poorly. But the things that, that, that overall investors need to look at right. is, is their blip was a, was a uh, they're very focused on bleeding edge equipment, okay? And I think it's a message that Teradyne needs to expand to get out of the bleeding edge and get off of relying on TSMC and Apple. And very, that's really what hit them. Very interesting. So let me ask you about the chips in particular. The semi-ETF at one point today was down more than 20% from its highs. Um, what does that tell you? Do you think it's unjustified? I mean, this was an ETF that saw huge run-up. Pre-pandemic, it never traded above like 140. We got up to 318. So some right. kind of reset seems appropriate, but should we expect there's going to be a bigger reset? We are in unprecedented demand for semiconductors. And the only thing on a revenue basis that makes it a little bit odd is when you look at memory prices that are going down. But if you look at compute, if you look at connectivity, if you look at storage, those are absolutely um, 
unprecedented growth that we're seeing. And what's driving that is the demand for enterprise SaaS and consumer SaaS and even PCs. I mean, Apple had the biggest device, uh, the biggest MacBook sales uh, ever, and that was driven by the competitiveness of its silicon. Wow. So let's talk about next week. We have Amazon. We have Alphabet. We even have names like Activision, a bunch of others. The tech landscape that you're describing sounds like it should give investors some, you know, reassurance that the fundamentals are still pretty strong. Or am I putting it too broadly? No, I think the only thing that's that, that you know, Amazon is a tech play on one side with its cloud arm and it's a retailer on the other. So, I can't necessarily speak for how its retail division will do, but I believe its cloud division will do exceptional. I think we've seen advertising as 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 a market uh, look really good, so I'm expecting Google to do well. But I think the fear of the future, if it's related to fundamentals of profit, I think are way overblown, and I, I think next week could be the big signal that tech is back. So with all that said, and given how much of a reset we've seen from the highs, you mentioned Intel. Are there any other names, some of the you know more overlooked names that you think investors should look to pick up here? Yeah, so I, I like Intel because its PE is just so low and it's a it's a future play. And I understand why uh, margins are, are dragging and people concerned, but, uh, but I'm not concerned. Microsoft is a safe bet. Uh, it's consumer, it's commercial, and it's the, in the right types of 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 businesses uh, that are uh, that are out there. All right, so there's a couple of names uh, as we head into another heavy week. Patrick, thanks for your time and your takeaways. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Patrick Moorhead. Today, coming up, dozens of companies, including Netflix, Tesla, and all the rest of them that you can see there, warning of price hikes this year due to inflation. Vanguard's global chief economist weighs in on inflation and the Fed next. Plus, check out shares of Robinhood mounting quite a comeback after falling as much as 15% after hours. The stock is now up almost 8%. They missed analyst estimates on nearly every metric, including guidance for the current quarter. We'll take a closer look at what's turning things around. And as we head to break, the Dow is trying to avoid its fourth negative week in a row with about half the components in positive territory, led by Apple, as we discussed, and Visa on strong results. Caterpillar Chevron heading the other way. We're back in a moment. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back. Inflation worries are front and center right now. But Menexca says the market's kind of focusing on the wrong inflation measures. They're not paying enough attention to wages, which have risen to a 20-year high in 2021. For more, I'm joined by Joe Davis, Vanguard's global chief economist and head of investment strategy. Joe, it's great to have you here. You think wages will dictate what the Fed does this year. Is that right? Yes, and uh, thanks for having me. Again, you know, food and energy prices have risen. That's been a tax uh, on consumers. But our thesis going into this year was that we were going to see normalization of policy. And the biggest reason is that the labor market is tighter than some, uh, I, I just think. And so wage inflation will ultimately determine how far the Fed has to go this cycle. So let's talk about some of those numbers. We get them monthly. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice. And we got the quarterly numbers today. But it's not like this is usually the most followed thing. You know, maybe in the jobs report you're saying it's not so much about the headline jobs added every month, but look at the average hourly earnings. Well, again, I think it's really important to calibrate. I mean, we have wages going up at least 4 or 5%. Uh, that's great for the consumer. It's good for the recovery. But what the Federal Reserve has to increasingly do is to ensure that those wage gains don't make it easier and easier and easier to raise prices for things that have nothing to do with the supply chain. And that's ultimately what, why we've seen the pivot from the Federal Reserve and also why I think the, the bond market may be modestly surprised in the next two years that the Fed may have to go a little bit higher than it currently expects. Yeah, to put it differently, what you're saying is, you know, rising wages aren't the problem. The problem is they're not actually keeping up with inflation and it kind of leads to this spiral and this chase where no one actually feels better off. Well, how many times do you think the Fed should hike this year? Is it seven? Because we're going to talk to Ethan Harris about that call next hour. Well, it's, it, it, it could very well be fewer than seven, but we've certainly been of the mind that the Fed was biased for action. Uh, I think the market is dire certainly directionally correct. I don't think 50 basis points will be, li uh, will be likely. I think it would be more important to focus on forward guidance. We will see some choppiness in the economic data if our forecasts are right. But nevertheless, we're going to have an unemployment rate that by the end of the year will be, will be closer to 3%. So if we think we see tightness in the labor market now, by the end of the year, uh, you know, we will see even a greater tightness. So the Federal Reserve clearly has to lift rates. And I think, you know, 5, 6, there may be a pause in there at some point because of volatility. But I think the trend is clearly uh, on the upside. So how far behind the curve are they? How fast do they have to move? How much do they have to move? And what do you say to those who worry that, slowing the economy, which in some ways, you know, could be the result, will be uh, a worse outcome than what we're seeing right now. Sure. And I, and I think it's fair, you know, concern from some. Uh, you know, I think the Federal Reserve, again, may have to go as high as 3 percent. That's higher than what most economists are expecting. But they are doing it to preserve the recovery. And the worst thing that we could have is, you know, wage prices continuing to increase, uh, impacting consumer spending, uh, leading to even more aggressive tightening uh, down the line. The, the Federal Reserve has to take, in my mind, in, uh, the Fed funds rate, the short-term interest rates, at least above where they would want inflation to be in the long run, which is 2 percent. And we're, we're well above that. Unemployment is also well below uh, a definition of full employment by the end of the year. So I don't see how you, you have a Federal Reserve that's not going to at least 2 percent unless something has broken hmm. uh, during the Fed uh, hiking cycle. But to go from zero to 2 percent would be eight quarter point rate hikes. So, you know, not yeah, and again, yeah, what, and again, it's, it, yeah, yeah, sure. It's over. The, it, well, it, and again, it's, it's really over the cycle. I mean, you have to look into 2023. This is not going to happen overnight. It would not be, 
I think uh, that just the, the, the best course of action. And this is about a normalization that's going to be a little bit quicker pace than we saw in the last recovery. Again, the last recovery, we had wage growth of only at best 2%. We now have 4%. So the, the, there is a greater tolerance of the economy on higher interest rates. And that ultimately is good news for the markets over the next several years, because that means inflation will eventually cool down. Very interesting. I guess, let me just ask you one more on this, Joe, which I'm starting to hear more and more about. Won't higher interest rates be bad for consumers on everything from we're going to talk about student debt later. That's a little bit different. Maybe more of it's fixed. But mortgage rates, borrowing rates, what's it all going to mean? Well, I think it will mean, you know, obviously modestly higher uh, tens or, or even hundreds of dollars in certain payments depend upon the loan balance. But for, say, for a mortgage holder, if the Federal Reserve engineers this right, and I, I think more than likely they will, it means long term interest rates will not rise nearly as much as short term. So this is good news for savers. It's ultimately also, it's not horrible news for those that have debt, particularly long-term interest rate debt, such as mortgages. So again, it's all, the worst thing would be the Federal Reserve not raising rates this year and then having to jack them up much more aggressively uh, and interest rates such as mortgage rates getting, you know, really untethered. Uh, but I don't see that happening. No, to your point, the curve's been flattening and, you know, twos are up substantially, but yep. tens not so much. Joe, it's great to have you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Joe Davis joining us from Vanguard. And be sure to tune in to the closing bell today, 3 p.m. Eastern, here from NEC Director Brian Deese with the White House's version of events. Still ahead, the biotech ETF, the XBI, has lost half its value since hitting an all-time high last year. Now Mizuho is out with their top picks for 2022, and some of the names here might surprise you. One of the stocks just hit a new high, while another is 35% off its record levels. The analyst with the list joins us next. Plus, the results of a new CNBC survey showing that most borrowers want student debt to be dissolved. But just how much are we talking? The surprising stats are ahead. Stay with us. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Tiger King, Joe Exotic, has been resentenced to 21 years in prison. That is just a year less than he received at his initial sentencing last year. 
and a murder-for-hire scheme. Exotic, whose real name is Joseph Maldonado Passage, wanted to be freed or have his sentence drastically reduced. State and local governments lost at least $117 billion in revenues during the first year of the pandemic. That's according to an analysis by the Associated Press. However, that same report also found that many of those governments have seen a rapid rebound, thanks in part to federal pandemic aid. And Kia has recalled more than 417,000 vehicles with airbags that may not work in a crash. The recall covers some Forte, Sedona and Soul models from 2017 through 2019. And on the news, responding to the Russian troop buildup near Ukraine, the latest from the Pentagon and what role the U.N. may play. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. But Kelly, obviously the big news today is the Joe Exotic News, obviously, at least this hour. Yeah, obviously. Well, thank you very much. Let's turn back to markets right now with yet another multi-hundred point swing in the session. Dow was down more than 500 at the lows. At the highs, we were up 246. We're 100 points off that level right now. And the Dow is the outperformer. It's only up half a percent today. Remember, Caterpillar is weighing on it. So is Chevron. Both of them reported. The S&P is up 1%, and the Nasdaq is up 1.5%. And tech is really powering the way here. Apple, for instance, even Visa, MasterCard, it's helping the whole payment space. And energy continues to outperform. It's now up 18% since Jan 1, adding about 5% this week. There you can see it behind me. Real estate utilities, those are the biggest laggards since Monday, and they're some of the most rate-sensitive groups. Semiconductors are also struggling with the SMH falling into a bear market or down 20% from its highs. Those highs were back in December. Uh, you can see the declines here behind me. Now it's trying to turn into positive territory for the day. It's tracking for its worst month since 2008, down 17% in January. Let's end on a higher note, though. Shares of a firm are surging after DA Davidson upgraded the buy now, pay later stock to a buy, but pay now, I guess. The analyst says they see a compelling risk reward in shares after their brutal sell-off. Despite today's 13 to 14% pop, this stock is still down more than 40% just in January on pace for its worst month ever. For more on the call, go to cnbc.com pro. And still ahead, three stocks to buy after the big declines we've seen this month and one stock our next guest is still staying away from. Gina Sanchez joins us with her three buys and a fail next. Welcome back, everyone. So on the second to last trading day of this pretty tough month, where are the buys and what's one name to still stay away from? Joining us now is CNBC contributor Gina Sanchez. She's chief market strategist at Lido Advisors, and she has three buys and a bail for us today. All right, Gina, welcome. It's great to have you here. Our first stock up is Caterpillar. It's one of the biggest drags on the Dow right now. They had a big bead for Q4 and before the bell, and there's precedent for that. It's a seventh straight beat, but the shares have fallen five out of the past six times post-earnings. So why do you want to pick it up here? So Caterpillar is one of these stories that we're basically looking to get into and maintain uh, exposure to growth. And growth is coming in a lot of different ways. And one of the big ways is obviously demand for more materials. You're even seeing sort of BHP, BHP Billiton and other uh, material stocks that are just booming. But Caterpillar, obviously, they are sending in all their excavators and their, their growth has been extraordinary. And they've actually, through this tumultuous first uh, you know, opener to the year, they've done very well, Kelly. Um, and, you know, right now, you don't want anything to be overpriced. The market is killing anything that's overpriced. So this is growth at a reasonable price. And that's really the thesis behind why we like this bet. And we think that this is a large, profitable company um, that has the potential to ride through uh, this growth cycle that we're experiencing. Yeah. So the stock is down about 5% today. So it's giving back some of that January outperformance. 
What they mm-hmm. said about China was a little more concerning, right, about slowing demand, and we don't know how long that could persist. I don't know if we should expect that to be a hangover on the stock. I mean, I think that's going to be a hangover on the entire market. I don't think that that's specific to cash. <laughs> so, you know, but but without a doubt, that is a concern that's, that should be growing because there's no question um, that China, because they were first out of the gate in the pandemic, first out of the gate into the vaccines, first out of the gate into the recovery, um, they're slowing at this point. You know, they're sort of toward the trough of their growth. Um, And so it makes sense that China pulls back, but you are seeing um, an uptake and increase in activity, for example, in Latin America. Um, And the US continues to go, even though we are slowing, um, we're still at well above uh, long-term averages for growth. Um, So the demand is still there. And I think that that is still, you know, an enormous part of of Caterpillar's profitability. All right, so CAT is your buy number one. Number two is ExxonMobil, and that's off to another hot start. It's already up more than 20% this year. After gaining 48% last year, they're getting a boost from energy prices, rebound in travel. They're expected to double revenue when they report next week. But are you more nervous after Chevron today? You know, I think the the entire the, the 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 thesis here really is things that help maintain an inflation hedge on the portfolio, and this is obviously one that participates directly in inflation because as oil prices go up, they benefit. Um, but also, this is a company you know that has been really, really uh, finally outperforming in their you know in, in their earnings, um, and you know could there be you know dips and 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 a roller coaster ride? Yes. However, the broad cycle is in their favor. And so even though they may have ups and downs, um, I think that there's still, you know, a good 12, 18 months of runway uh, for this company to continue to perform and help hedge a portfolio in the face of uh, lingering inflation. And I know you tend to be a stock picker, but what about the energy ETF more broadly or the whole sector at a time when people are looking for that kind of pricing power hedge? Oh no, we we actually we love the sector right now. This sector is is a space that you can participate in broadly. So this is a rising tides will lift all boats. All right. And Exxon you think is going to be one of those. That's buy number 2. Final buy of the day is Bank of America, coming off a strong year which saw shares up 46%. Unlike competitors, they had strong fourth quarter results, 28% earnings growth, and they could get another boost once the Fed begins raising rates, but that curve is flattening, Gina. Yeah, I agree. You know, I don't love the flattening curve for, for the banks generally. However, increased activity um, and, and uh, going into a interest rate, you know, interest rate raises, be- hikes because of um, increased economic activity are good for banks. And if you look at Bank of America specifically, so, you know, not all the banks are participating in this, you know, Bank of America is really growing their, their lending book. Um, and so in the face of everything that's happening, they're continuing to grow their earnings and growing their growing their profitability. Um, And that's beneficial for Bank of America. We've actually participated in Bank of America. We've had Bank of America uh, through this cycle and they've done well for us. All right. So those are the three, Caterpillar, Exxon, Bank of America. Now let's turn to the one to bail on. And it, yeah, you know, (laughs) it's been, it's been such a tough run. Peloton, you're saying, and they officially plunged below the IPO price last week. Uh, They were down 30% this month. And I am, I would like to hear you talk about it because some are looking at Robinhood and Peloton and some of these others are going, okay, can it really get any worse at this point? You know, are the are these buying opportunities? Why do you stay away from Peloton here? You know, the issue that I've always had with Peloton, and I wasn't a, a bull that turned bear. I actually didn't like the story from the very beginning um, when everybody was buying them into the into the pandemic. And that's because the data suggests that most 
average human beings um, will leave, will, will sort of quit going to their gym after six months. They'll stop using a wearable device after three months. And Peloton is not immune to that, right? They, st- they were always going to be set up for that kind of churn, but the price was pricing them like this sort of long-term subscription model. But at the end of the day, the subscription depended on people being willing to get on their bikes and actually cycle. And human nature just works against you. Returning to work worked against Peloton because now people had less and less time uh, to sort of do that. And Peloton is still at the end of the day, they're a device maker. They're a manufacturer of product. They're not really yet uh, a, a software play. They're not a SaaS play. And they need to really work hard to get that game on. I mean, there's a lot they can do with that that device um, that could actually help them earn the premium that they've had in the market, but they're not doing that. All hmm. they've done is create new products that just are subject to the same problems. They are creating a lot of new products. So what would you like to see them do with the core product to improve it? And, and what about those who think they could end up being a takeout target? Well, so I think that right now they have the device that would allow people to be able to gather together and socially cycle, right? That social aspect, they are set up for that. They have a camera, everything is there, and yet they're not doing it because the only subscription model is for you to subscribe to their classes rather than get together with all of your cycling moms hmm. and have a little you know, cycle day, for example. The second thing they need to do is they need to bundle entertainment into their subscription. If you had Netflix, if you had Amazon Prime bundled in, to that, you're going to capture sort of the average, let's call them person who wants to think they're working out, but they aren't really that serious about it. So if you just cycle through like a good, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, watching Bridgerton, then that that is a whole segment of the market that they're missing by being psychophantic about how you subscribe to their product. Very interesting. And I definitely take your point about the social aspect being being a source of growth. All right. So let's talk. Are there any others in like the 80 percent down camp, Gina, that would be interesting to you? Or as a rule, does that kind of decline kind of tell you the verdict on a lot of these stocks? Look, right now, the market is just penalizing anything that's highly priced that doesn't have a path to profitability. It's one of the reasons we're staying away from Peloton. But there are a lot of other names like that. And those are the ones that tend to land in that sort of uh, down, 80, <laughs> down 80% camp is, is that, you know, you, 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 if you don't see a path to profitability in the next 12 months, the market hates you right now. And there are certainly babies in that bathwater that you know that they're going to do well. You know, you look at a Microsoft, for example, that cloud story, that's not going away. Right. And so, you know, that, that that's something that is that, you know, we continue to hold on to and it's been beaten up. Yeah. Um, but not down but, 80 you know, percent. But th- yeah, <laughs> no, no, exactly. But we tend to be focused on quality. And so it's one of the reasons that the p- portfolios held up because we never loved the sort of hyped up stories. Very. Um, but I think that right now people have to think about what is the path to profitability, because that's really how the market is judging stocks. Yeah, well said. Gina, great to have you here today. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Gina Sanchez with Lido Advisors. Still ahead, Americans have nearly $2 trillion in student loan debt. What borrowers want and the long-term lifestyle impacts next. And as we head to break, here's a quick look at next week's earnings. It's not just tech on deck. We have Starbucks, GM, Ford, UPS, just some of the other big names we are looking forward to hearing from. We're back in a moment. 
Welcome back. About 43 million Americans have federal student loan debt of nearly $1.6 trillion in total. Most Americans want Biden to prioritize loan forgiveness, according to the new CNBC Plus Acorns Invest in You Student Loan Survey, which was done in partnership with Momentum. Sharon Epperson is here now with the results and much more. Sharon? Well, Kelly, the national survey found that 57 percent of Americans believe President Biden should make student loan forgiveness a priority. But views on how to do it are mixed. More than 5,000 adults responded to this survey. About one-third, 34 percent, said all student loans should be forgiven. Another third, 35 percent, said loans should be forgiven only for those in need. And one in four, or 27 percent, said student loans should not be forgiven for anyone. Now, without loan forgiveness, economist Kristen Brody says the burden that student debt can create can be an endless cycle. You have less money to pass along to your own children, which means they're more likely to need to take out student loans if and when they get ready to go to college. So forgiving student loans could help mitigate some of that cycle. Financial aid expert Mark Kantrowitz says there needs to be a targeted approach. Broad loan forgiveness will forgive the loans, not just of people who are experiencing economic distress, but also people who are perfectly capable of repaying their student loans. Now, delving into those numbers a bit more, borrowers with incomes below $50,000 in this survey were most likely to be in favor of forgiving loans for all with student debt. About 42 percent on the and that was about 42 percent. Now, on the other hand, there were about 33 percent of those with incomes between 50 and 100,000 who said this and only 25 percent with those of income above $100,000 said all loans should be forgiven, Kelly. Yeah, the results, if it were a private company who got people into this mess, the government would be all over them, but it was the government itself, so here we are. Another interesting finding is how many people believe taking out those loans was still worth it, Sharon. Yeah, that was really fascinating. In the survey, more than half of borrowers, about 54 percent with federal student loans, said they did not think that taking on student debt was worth it. We talked to a 39-year-old woman who still has to pay nearly a third, about $30,000 of the six-figure sum that she took out in order to get two degrees. She said she now feels a little bit foolish about borrowing the money in the first place for her master's. So tough. All right. So what will happen to borrowers when they have to resume making all of these federal student loan payments? This pause, you know, on student loans has been in effect since March of 2020, part of the pandemic relief, and payments are scheduled to start again on May 1st. Some are skeptical about whether that date is actually going to stick, but when they do have to start paying back their loans, many borrowers in the survey said it will delay some of their major financial goals, including paying off other debts, investing, saving for retirement, and buying a home. And we have so much more about this survey and the results on cbc.com slash invest in you, Kelly. Absolutely. Sharon, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Sharon Epperson. And we should note NBC Universal and Comcast Ventures are investors in Acorns. Coming up, biotech has gotten clobbered of late. The XBI ETF down more than 20% just this year. But one analyst is going bargain hunting. The large cap names he says have an underappreciated growth outlook. Next. And remember, you can catch our show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. While you're there, check out Conversations with Kelly with extended chats with key players on topics of interest. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Stay with us.
The Nasdaq Biotech ETF ticker IBB is up to uh, about 2% today, but it's still having a rough start to the year. It's down 17% since Jan 1. My next guest is finding value in the wreckage. Joining me now is Vimil Devan, Senior Biopharmaceuticals Research Analyst at Mizuho. Vimil, first of all, and maybe this isn't too simple of a question, but why has biotech in particular been hit so hard? Yeah, thanks for having me on. I think there's a, like several reasons that have played a role since last year into this year. I think we've seen a lot of questions around the FDA and some uncertainty around their approval process, which drugs are going to get approved, which are not going to get approved. Um, we've seen questions from the FTC, maybe taking a little bit bigger look at M&A in the space. And I think obviously for smaller cap biotech companies, a lot of the, the appeal is that they may get acquired at some time by one of the larger companies. If that goes away, then that's a problem. And then there's also the broader sort of discussion on drug pricing uh, that kind of has continued to be an overhang on the group. You know, is there going to be changes to how drugs are priced in this country? What could that mean for the sector? So, so several sort of macro factors that have really impacted the group and I think just got investors deciding that they want to look elsewhere. Yeah, and uh, just to make a note, the names that you do like, especially your favorites, are ones that are already doing well in what's been kind of a tough landscape for biotech. So AbbVie up 30%, that's your top pick. This a uh, Botox play? That's part of it. Yeah, they bought Allergan a couple of years ago. Aesthetics is a big part of the company, now about 10% or so of the sales. But they also have a strong business in immunology, in oncology, in neuroscience. A lot of that also coming from Allergan. So we really like how it's a nice, diversified growth story and trading at a significant discount still, despite the move to its peers in, in pharma. Now, they do have a big patent loss next year with their biggest product called Humira. that's going to face competition in the U.S., but we think they've done enough now to diversify the story and have these other growth drivers. So, so yeah, we really like it. We think there's a lot of room for upside, both in terms of estimates and then also multiple expansion. All right. The other three names might be a little less familiar. Biohaven, Alchemy's Karuna with Biohaven. It's up 44% over the past year. Tell me that you were a thesis on this one. Yeah, so it's pretty straightforward. It's a company that has one main product. It's for uh, migraines. People may have seen the ads. It's called Nurtech mm. ODT. They have a lot of sort of famous sort of celebrities endorsing it now. Uh, it got approved uh, you know, a couple of years ago now. It had very rapid uptake in the market, both for the acute treatment of migraine headaches and now also is approved to help prevent migraine headaches from coming. So pretty simple story, pretty easy to understand. Uh, it's a little oral disintegrating tablet. You just put it in your mouth that dissolves very easily uh, and has very good uptake. So I think people, you know, we've seen, been impressed by how the companies commercialized it and see a lot of room for that to be, you know, maybe a three, four, five billion dollar product. So even though the stock's done well, see a lot of room for more upside if they continue to execute on, on the rollout. Interesting. Karuna up 5% over the past year. Alchemy's up 16%. Tell me about why those are top picks for you. Yeah, so Karuna's a sort of different earlier stage company. They have one main product, which is still in development. So the clinical trials are ongoing, and we're going to get the readout later this year uh, for the first trial, and then middle of the year, and then end of the year for the second trial. But the phase two data, the mid-stage trial, very impressive efficacy and a reasonable safety profile for patients with schizophrenia. And so we are optimistic that the phase three data will be somewhat similar to that, maybe not as good, but still very good, and be sort of a leader in the schizophrenia space in the in the years to come. Yeah. Uh, and then Alchemy's a little bit more diversified story. Um, it was doing very well last year, had a setback because of some legal dispute with Johnson & Johnson, a company that they provide some IP to. Um, but they have a new product that just got launched also in the schizophrenia space that seems to be doing quite well. They have a pipeline one in oncology that we're excited about. 
and then a couple other ones that are already in the market and doing well. So a little bit, uh, a little bit more diversified than a Karuna, uh, but still driven by I think the, the new products and the uptake that we expect there. And, and we think sort of underappreciated by the street. Yeah, maybe a little something for everyone, depending on, you know, what kind of biotech play they're looking for. Vimal, thanks so much for walking us through it. And a reminder, it is a market of stocks, after all, even though they often get trade all lumped together. Vimal Devon joining us from Mizuho today. And join us for CNBC's Healthy Returns Summit on March 30th. We'll look at the intersection of innovation and investment with leaders in healthcare to find the best opportunities for investors. You can register now at CNBCEvents.com. Shares of Robinhood higher after getting slammed last night on weak results and disappointing guidance. Could extended trading turn things around? That's next. Welcome back. Shares of Robinhood getting hit last night. You can see the red there on disappointing results. But after hours could actually bring users back to the app, they think. The shares are up three and a half percent right now. Kate Rooney joins us with the story. Kate. Hey, Kelly. Robinhood executives talked about that long term plan to bring this company back to profitability. But in the short term, Robinhood didn't quite deliver on those expectations. Quick recap on what caused that sell off you mentioned overnight. They had deeper losses than expected, lower revenue guidance for Q1 that came in about $100 million below what Wall Street was looking for. There was a slowdown in monthly users and increased expenses. Shares did bounce back today, though. They had been hit as much as 14 percent. They seem to have found a bottom, at least in the near term, around 10 bucks today. Remember, the stock, though, listed at $38 a share last summer. CEO Vlad Tenev fielding some questions from individual shareholders on the call, one asked, what is up with the stock since the IPO and said, essentially, what steps are you taking to turn it around and increase shareholder value? Tenev said, quote, let's not sugarcoat it. We are disappointed with the stock price, but says that they won't sacrifice long term performance for just one quarter. That roadmap really was the focus of the analyst call. Robinhood plans to launch retirement accounts by the end of the year. They talked about crypto wallets launching by mid-year, something called ACATS in. That's basically the ability to let people transfer money in from other brokers and international expansion as well. Finally, hyper-extended trading hours. That's one lever of growth there. Revenue, though, is still very much correlated to market conditions and how much users are trading. CFO Jason Warnick telling me the current month, January so far, had been slower uh, compared to the end of last year, but it has started to pick up in the past few days with recent volatility. Kelly. Kate, I don't understand. I mean, they're not in charge of the trading hours. So what what is this service they would be offering? <laughs> That's a good question. It was quite vague in, in the description. But if you think about uh, the ability to, to trade things like cryptocurrencies, you know, that is a market that's open 24-7. It is just pretty much normal after hours trading and maybe international, but uh, very sparse in the details in terms of uh, the hyperextended trading, but something that you know people do want to do is trade after hours. Some, something relative in terms of the growth level, levers that was mentioned as a long-term thing. Analysts were asking too for details. You know, when exactly will these things launch, and when will they add and start being accretive to revenue? That still is very much an open question. Yeah, and I think on that one in particular, the fact that they have these plans to do retirement accounts and crypto wallets are great, but you'd hope they could get that launched while they still have a decent user base. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that did actually seem more significant, they they have these products, but they actually renegotiated um, the economics on the backside for crypto trading. They have a new partner and a new market maker. They said the economics are improving by about 50 percent. So 
some of those things, you know, negotiating their current contracts yeah. seem to be what analysts were actually slightly more excited than things like 401ks. So we'll see when that launches. <laughs> things like 401ks. I know. Kate, thank you very much. It's good to see you. Kate Rooney is all over Robinhood. And from Robinhood to the AMC Apes and Wall Street Bets, we're tackling all of the trends that changed the way we trade over the past year. Don't miss our special coverage of the retail revolution tonight on Fast Money at 5 p.m. Eastern. That does it for us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.